Around the Rock, the Scores NBA podcast. My name is Joseph Cacharo, and I'm joined, as always, remotely by co-host Joe Wolfon. Hey, hey, hey. Hey, hey, hey. We are down to eight. And then there were eight. Maybe seven if you don't include Milwaukee, who hasn't actually shown up for the second round yet. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, a lot, of, a lot of things have happened. You know, the coaching carousel is spinning out of control, as it wants to do in the NBA. Eight teams have been eliminated, one of which the defending champion Los Angeles Lakers. Now, LeBron and the Lakers missed the playoffs entirely in 2019, but in terms of the playoffs themselves, it's his first first-round elimination ever. It's his first non-finals elimination in 11 years. First time since, I believe, 2006 that a finals will not include LeBron, Kobe, or Steph Curry. Uh, it, it does have a little bit, again, even though him he missed the playoffs entirely in 2019, I feel like this elimination had a little bit more of a feeling of a changing of the guard to me and not that he i think it's like you know his years of contending or being one of the best players if not the best player alive when healthy are over i don't think that but the way it happened i think the way that the suns brutally just demolished them in those last couple games without ad or with ad for a few seconds I just think there was something to it that really did feel like, and look, I mean, you know, I wrote about this in, um, in wondering, you know, if, if LeBron's Lakers are fading and kind of going the wrong way here, LeBron's first 15 years in the league, he averaged, I think 4.3 games missed per 82. His last three years, he's now averaging per 82, almost 20. Um, you know, he's missed 27 games each in two of the last three seasons. His first 15 years, he had never missed more than 13 games in a season. As you said last week, you know, maybe this is what father time catching up to him looks like, right? I think I feel like a lot of people expect, you know, one significant injury or very clear-cut moment that we'll be able to point to and say, ah, damn, this is this is what's gonna slow LeBron down. But no, I, I think, as you mentioned last week, and I think as the numbers indicate from a games miss perspective, these injuries that he just can't recover from or bounce back from as quickly anymore is probably father time catching up with him. And even in that series against the Suns, I mean, look, I know it had only been a few weeks since he came back to the lineup for a second time from a very serious high ankle sprain, but still, LeBron of the past, like three weeks post-injury return, would usually be enough for him to look a little more like himself. And it was pretty jarring to see three weeks into his return, him still not really have much lift or bounce around the rim other than maybe like a few moments in game two or three. Something about the way they went out, somewhat of a feeble manner, made me feel like this was the changing of a guard. And I think it helped that, you know, Devin Booker had an insane series against him. Trey Young's doing what he's doing right now in Atlanta. Luka Doncic, obviously the Mavs were eliminated, but, you know, has staked his claim to being maybe the next one. There, there's just so much of this young talent around and they're getting it done in the playoffs while what happened to the Lakers happened. It, yeah, it just felt like maybe this is the beginning of the end of one era and the beginning of another one. Yeah, I mean, I don't have too much to say about it because I feel like we touched on it last episode and I said that I expected them to lose game six. I wasn't really surprised by the way that it ended. They're a top-heavy team that was without by far second best player and LeBron I think is still like 
if you give him just like a clean bill of health right now, like wipe away whatever ailments he's dealing with, which is not realistic, you know, for a a 36 year old at the tail end of a long season, especially one coming after a ridiculously abbreviated off season. But if you were to say, okay, like it's everybody in the league is fully healthy. Like I would still probably say, I think LeBron's the best player, Mm -hmm. but for him to be in the state that he was in physically, like it was never realistic to expect that he was going to be able to carry that team the way that he did, you know, that Cavs team in 2015, when it's like him and Matthew Dellavedova giving the Warriors a series when Kevin Love and Kyrie are out. Like, and I also think, you know, you pointed to this last episode, which is that the team's lack of shooting became a really big issue. And it was an outlier when they won the title without that three point shooting last year. Part of that had to do with the fact that like their poor shooters just kind of shot a lot better in the playoffs than they had during the regular season. Part of it was that they were able to sort of impose their will and win with like more of a bully ball style, which I think is just really difficult to do in this day and age. But I I just think we really saw that come back to bite them in those last couple of games where the Suns are just packing the absolute bejesus out of the paint. And there really isn't a whole lot that LeBron can do, especially without that burst and that lift to break through that wall of defenders. And if the Lakers aren't going to punish them for that with their outside shooting, then I just felt like, you know, without AD, you know, at either end of the floor, they were sort of drawing dead. So I don't really take too much away from that. I think it might ultimately be somewhat of a blessing, like getting LeBron this longer off season, maybe getting the front office to take a long, hard look at this roster and figure out what it needs to do in order to get it back to championship level. You know, that starts with Dennis Schroeder, who's about to become a free agent. He turned down a four year, $84 million extension, I believe, which after that showing in the playoffs, I think it's important to note that he was coming off of, I don't actually know. Like, what did he have COVID? I feel like it was so unclear the way that he discussed that situation. He, but. Yeah, he he said he's the only one on the team who didn't get vaxxed. No one's sure whether he had COVID or he was he had to uh, enter the protocols for violating the rules. Like, it was never really clear. I think he said that it was a false test, but then he also said something along the lines of. I'm relieved because it means I won't get it in the playoffs now. It was Schroeder's rising to the top of the fraud rankings after that showing <laughs> and his, his COVID-related explanation. I actually thought that he had quite a good season before that absence, especially at the defensive end of the floor. And, you know, despite the fact that he is not much of a jump shooter, I thought he was able to be pretty effective operating as a secondary ball handler next to LeBron, running pick and roll with LeBron as a screener. Um, able to punish defenders for going under against him just with his speed, like an ability to beat them to the spot. Um, but he he was awful in the playoffs, and I, I don't think that he is going to make that four-year, $84 million deal up in free agency. And I don't know if the Lakers want to be the team to pay him, like that deal or any other deal, given what it kind of looked like and given what it seems like they need right now. They desperately need shooting and they still desperately need, I guess, what they thought Schroeder would provide and what he did provide for much of the regular season, which is they need another initiator, facilitator to either be a secondary guy to LeBron while they share the court or to at least prop up 
lineups while LeBron was resting. Yeah. And, you know, and that, that guy, that guy needs to be able to hit threes off the dribble, yes. I think. Yes. Nine of the previous 10 champions before the Lakers had finished top nine in three point shooting in the regular season. This year, the final eight teams standing in the playoffs all finished top 12 in three point shooting. The Lakers that won the title last year finished 21st in percentage and 22nd in three-point frequency. And the Lakers this year finished 21st and 23rd in those metrics. It was a combination of being an outlier and just the sheer dominant brilliance between LeBron James and Anthony Davis and how perfect of a combination they are on both ends of the court. And when they weren't 100% and the Lakers hadn't really addressed those other issues, the team cratered. And yeah, I get in hindsight, we should not have been surprised about it. You were not. So we'll see what they do now because after they won the title and made the roster changes they made, it def- on paper, it looked like they were stronger this year than last, right? And then it it didn't really pan out that way. Schroeder had the good season and then whatever happened, happened. He was terrible in the playoffs. Harrell, you know, remains a postseason liability because of his defensive deficiencies and barely played in the playoffs. Marcus Gasol, we already knew he was limited offensively. But his defensive mobility took a hit now too. And yeah, he, he, can, he might be toast. Yeah, exactly. And so there's that. Um, who am I missing? I mean, Andre Drummond, I thought actually was better than I thought he would be in that series, but he's still not the answer to any of their issues. Um, Wes Matthews had the worst shooting season of his career and wasn't as solid as he usually is defensively. Wes Matthews could never really replicate what Danny Green gave them last year. So they, they've got some major questions to answer this offseason. And the younger rising contenders in the West are not going anywhere. So the Lakers have some work to do, man. And that said, like if they do come back next year and LeBron and AD are something close to fully healthy, like they're right there in the mix as, you know, yep. one of, if not the favorites in the Western Conference. Like I, I think it, it should not be understated the fact that like they were looking pretty comfortable in that series. And I know Chris Paul was ailing, but like before AD messed up his groin, like they were looking pretty comfortable in that series against the Suns. So, you know, I know recency bias is a hell of a drug, but I don't think we should lose sight of the fact that that's still probably the best duo in the league. And, you know, maybe, I don't know if this is going to happen and, and like, considering it's been a thing throughout AD's career, I don't know if it's going to change now, but I I think it would behoove him and the Lakers for them to kind of approach next season with a, okay, like if we're going up against a bully ball behemoth center, we'll play you at the four, but in basically all other circumstances, like you're our our center. Because for them to... Like whether it's bringing back Drummond or just sort of plucking another replacement level big man off of the scrap heap, just so AD can continue to kind of masquerade as a four. I shouldn't say masquerade, but like I, I think he's most effective as a five. I think that's become very, very clear. Maybe it's just like for the sake of, of preserving him in the regular season, they still want to primarily play him at the four. But like come playoff time, I just feel like that has to be the default at this point. Yeah, and this is something I've been saying since last year. It's like, Okay, at first they wanted to appease him because he hadn't actually signed yet, you know? And it was like, all right, let's make AD happy. Now you've got him long-term. LeBron's still under contract. Like, like, I'm not saying you you can upset these guys, but like, you don't have to necessarily bend over backwards to like keep them for another year or to get... 
make him play the five. Like, what's he going to do, sit out? Is he going to protest if you, you know what I mean? Like, I get that you want some give and take, yes, but at some point, whether it's Frank Vogel, whoever, just tell him he's playing the five. (laughs) I just, yeah, I mean, because it would be for his own benefit, I think. And certainly that of the Lakers, like we're talking about their need for more shooting and better spacing, removing a non-shooting big from the equation and slotting another shooter into their most commonly used lineups would be a pretty good place to start. And like, it's nice to say, okay, like he could play next to Marcus all who can space the floor out to three, but like, it's not defenses aren't treating Marcus all as a shooter. Like, at the end of the day, he he's taking like three threes a game and hitting maybe like one of them. Like a defense will live with that. They will sag off of him and they will clog things up. And they know there are going to be those times when he's not even going to look at the rim from beyond the arc. Like they need actual shooters in those lineups. And I just think like the two big look can't like it can work sometimes for sure against the right opponent in the right circumstance. But I just think that I, I don't know if that can be their default. Um, moving forward, if they want to be as successful as they, you know, they intend to be. If LeBron and AD are both healthy, they can win another championship, but they can no longer bank on that, especially in LeBron's case. I don't think you can just bank on the fact anymore that he'll be there, you know, 75 games a season. And because of that, you're in contention. Like you need to actually do the work to put a better and more fitting team around them now. And I think that's I hope what they've learned this year is that you can't just bank on the durability of LeBron and to a lesser extent AD. And um, and also they should have made that fucking trade for Kyle Lowry. Like, yeah, they would have had he, him for this year and maybe it wouldn't have made a difference this year, but they would have had his bird rights and they would have been able to re-sign him, which they now can't do. Right. And if you look at their cap sheet, the fact that they didn't make a move for a guy like that is even more perplexing when you consider that they can't really do it now because they're capped out. They, I believe, can't trade their own first rounder to like 2026 or something because they've got so many of them tied up in the trade that got them Anthony Davis. And I don't know, I guess they thought Taylor and Horton Tucker at the end of the year, you know, would still have value. But like, I'm not saying he doesn't have value, but he's got less value now after that playoff series than he did at the deadline. Now, I don't know if I even believe that the Raptors would have been willing to make that deal, but it, the reports are that they were. And if the reports are accurate that the deal wasn't completed because the Lakers did not want to give up Talon Horton Tucker for Kyle Lowry, that is an absolute gong show. Yeah. LeBron is 36. Like, yeah. what are you doing? Yeah. Um, okay. Shall enough, we... <laughs> enough about the most famous eliminated team. Let's talk about the series that are going on now. You want to start with Milwaukee, Brooklyn, or you want to start with Phoenix, Denver? No, we can start with Milwaukee, Brooklyn. I, I can clear out here and let you cook for a little while if if you want to go off. No, you know what? It's not even about going off. It's really not because, first of all, they're going back to Milwaukee. It's 2 nothing. They're probably done. But, you know, you win game three and it's a new series and they're going back home. So I don't want to completely write them off. But I think that we have seen a lot in these two games that just kind of reinforce a lot of the issues that many of us have had with this team over the years. And look, and I tweeted this last night too. A lot of it is just the Nets are ridiculous. You know, a lot of it is Kevin Durant can come down the court 
and freaking cook Giannis Antetokounmpo one-on-one and shake him out of his shorts and then hit a long two. Or Kyrie Irving can come sprinting up the court, stop on a dime, and splash a three on your face. You know, Blake Griffin, I know we can make all the jokes we want about what he wasn't doing in Detroit, but the fact of the matter is, this is a veteran guy who has never been to the mountaintop. And if you watch the way he's thrown, it's not even just the dunks, man. There was a like first quarter play last night where he hit the deck to get a loose ball, and he was the only one on the court on the floor. The guy wants to win very badly because he hasn't before. The role players for this team are so perfectly cast. Steve Nash, as I've discussed, I think, has done an underrated job there this year. And then, yeah, oh, by the way, they've got James Harden waiting in the wings and even a very well-cast Jeff Green not on the court. Like, this team is ridiculous, and they do not want to take away from that. However, like, if you're a Bucks fan, how are you not pulling your hair out? Um, whether it's game one and Mike Budenholzer talking about like keeping his stars fresh. Like, is this 2019 all over again? Come on, man. We can't. And Mike Poonholzer, even after that game, he even talked about how they're a deep team. And funny enough, if you recall going into this postseason, the one thing I said is I think the Bucks may have saved Mike Budenholzer from himself because they lack depth and are so top heavy this year that he he's got no choice but to ride those guys. And game one of the second round, post game, he's talking about how they have a deep team. And a lot of good players, and you got to keep the other guys fresh. Chris Middleton, you sent me a text last <laughs> night saying that uh, Paul George should actually give the honor of Tin Man to Chris Middleton. And look, I wasn't even going to go that far because I don't think it's a matter of like not wanting it or not, not having heart. I think it's just a matter of Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday. Like they're great players, but they're being miscast right now. And here's what I mean by that. I think Chris Middleton and Drew Holiday – Pick whichever one is a two, whichever one is the number three. But I think they're fine as a number two and number three guy. Like, mm-hmm. I think you can win a title with those two guys as your second and third best players if you have the right number one. The problem is because of Giannis's limitations on the offensive end, his specific limitations, I feel like he despite being a number one, the number two that he needs needs to be more of a legit offensive star because of the limitations he has. And I don't think either of Chris Middleton or Drew Holiday, for as great as they are, I know they're both great players, are quite at that level. So to me, it's not even that like, oh, these guys can't be the number two and number three on a title team. I think it's that they're not individually good enough offensively to be the number two guy on a title team led by Giannis Antetokounmpo. And, I mean, that's probably an issue given the fact that all three of these guys are now locked in forever. But, yeah, just a lot of things happening this series that if I were a Bucks fan, I'd be like, okay, it's it's settled now. Like, they, this team is never going to learn anything. It, it, this is what they are, and we just have to hope that one year we catch lightning in a bottle and Giannis maybe expands his game over the years, and there's just one year where no one on earth can stop the guy and, and we get our title that way. But other than that, I'm having a hard time believing how this team breaks through as presently constructed. Even, like, look, I I laugh at and rip on Budenholzer as much as anybody. I don't know what a coaching change is really going to do about the things I just talked about. And, like, I'm genuinely curious. Like, I I can point out some things that I think that they could be doing better Mm -hmm. or differently. I'm genuinely curious what people think the Bucs could be doing that would have put them in any other situation than down 0-2 going back to Milwaukee right now. 
Like, again, I, I, Bud is an imperfect coach and he has had an imperfect couple of games here. But it, it, it was just like kind of funny to me. I was watching the game last night and it's like, KD is like cooking Giannis one-on-one, as you mentioned. Kyrie is just coming down the court and splashing pull-up threes. They're running pick and roll. The Bucks are sending help. It's a kick out to the wing. And it's like Kyrie or KD or Joe Harris splashing an open three. And I'm watching this happen. And then I'm like looking on Twitter and it's like fire bud, fire bud. And I'm like, okay, sure. But, but, but like, what is bud really supposed to do? I saw people pointing out the fact that like the Nets, they shot seven free throws in that game. And there were people on my timeline using that as evidence that like the Bucks weren't physical enough with them. The Nets are barely even going to the rim. They're just shooting jump shots. Like, what are the Bucks supposed to do? They're supposed to maul them on jump shots? Like, send them to the free throw line for three free throws because we tackle a guy shooting a triple? Like, well, what are we talking about? That might have been the plan because they brought in Thanasis uh, <laughs> a lot earlier than I anticipated. And also at the end, Diakite tried to take Tyler Johnson's head off. So that might have actually been the plan. Maybe there you Bud go. That, also that... looked at the seven free throw attempts and thought, no, 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 no. We can't stand for this. Yeah, we got to set the tone. Yeah. Um, but, okay, so so here's what it is to me. I mean, the Nets' offense is ridiculous. I really don't know what the Bucks' defense can do about it. There are times when they're getting tied in knots and the help rotations are getting screwed up, and they can clean that stuff up, but it, it's... Like the Nets put you in so many compromising situations that like you're not going to get through it without making defensive breakdowns. That play where Blake Griffin made that cut from the corner and wound up dunking on Giannis was like, KD is running. So first of all, the Nets started Bruce Brown, which I thought was interesting because that kind of, I remember talking about this, you know, after that miniseries that the teams played and when Giannis spent some time guarding Bruce Brown when he was on the floor and that opened him up as a helper and the Nets wound up sitting Bruce Brown down because Giannis was like wreaking a little bit too much havoc as a help guy. This time the Bucks had Giannis on uh, Blake Griffin and they put Brooke Lopez on Bruce Brown. And the Nets answer to that was like, okay, Bruce Brown's going to be our screener in pick and roll. And he was going to dice you up as a role man. I don't know if Bruce Brown could work as a role man on like any other team, but on this Nets team, it's like perfect because he's just constantly rolling into space and he's like a creative passer. He can do like, he can hit that floater. And there's this one possession where, uh, you know, KD is, is running a high pick and roll with Brown as a screener and they, they run the initial screen. Then they do a rescreen. Brooke Lopez is kind of on the wrong side. He has to come out and show high to take away KD's pull-up. KD hits Bruce Brown with the pocket pass on the roll. So Giannis is in the strong side corner. Pat Connaughton's in the weak side corner. They both rotate to the middle at the same time. And, like, that's not Giannis's help. Like, Connaughton was there. But Giannis, you know, as is kind of his proclivity, I think, and it, and it is an issue that the Bucks get themselves in a lot where they do overhelp. That just opens up that cut for Blake Griffin. And obviously Giannis is late trying to contest because he was crashing toward the middle to try and stop Bruce Brown on the roll. And Blake dunks all over him. So there is like stuff like that they can clean up. But it's just, again, like I don't really know what they can do to do a better job of guarding the Nets 
on the perimeter. People want them to kind of go small, Giannis at the five, switch everything. Maybe that could have worked if DiVincenzo was healthy. But with him out, it's like, who's the fifth guy in that lineup? First of all, even with DiVincenzo, like that lineup would not have had enough offense because DiVincenzo was shooting the ball terribly when he was healthy. Mm-hmm. Brooke Lopez, yeah, like he's obviously going to struggle to guard Nets high pick and roll, but he's at least giving them something at the offensive end. PJ Tucker is giving them nothing at the offensive end and the Nets aren't guarding him at all. PJ Tucker, as someone pointed out on Twitter, and I can't remember who it was, wore more different pairs of shoes last night than he scored points. There you go. And, and like that, that's that's a legitimate <laughs> fact of game two in the second round of the NBA playoffs. And so, okay, so you like let's say that they do that. They go with Giannis at the five. Maybe it's Bobby Portis they slide into that lineup. Like it's probably gotta be Bryn Forbes because they need his shooting. But then the Nets are just going to like pick out the guy that they want to isolate against and cook him one-on-one. Like It's not really going to change anything. Maybe the biggest issue to me right now is the Nets are packing the hell out of the paint. And, and I know you, know you watch and it kind of looks like Blake Griffin is sort of shutting down Giannis one-on-one, which is not totally untrue. But like they're sending some pretty aggressive digs down on Giannis. They're not letting him get to that spin move. And it's not like he has a ton of space. Like, yeah, everyone can say he doesn't have a move. He doesn't have a post game. He doesn't have a bag. That's all true to an extent. But he doesn't have a lot of room to operate. And maybe if like... When he's turning, when he's spinning off of Blake Griffin, there's usually a net there. There's a guy in his lap every time. Yeah. And like, I do think his passing reads out of the post and out of double teams need to be faster. That's been kind of like a recurring issue. I thought he got better at that this season, but like... It hasn't been good in this series, but the Bucks also aren't hitting shots. And it's like, okay, so they'll bring Bryn Forbes in to try and like goose their spacing, but he's so flammable on defense that it doesn't matter. He's giving it all back at the other end. And the, the Nets are just like targeting him every single time. I remember saying, okay, the Bucks need to find more and better counters for like the Blake Griffin gap coverage than just Giannis shooting pull-up jumpers. He shot 12 pull-up jumpers in game one. He shot only eight in game two, which I guess is an improvement. But if he's just like barreling headlong into Brooke Lopez and like the kind of wall that the Nets are building, then I don't even know if that's better. I would like to see them use him as a screener more. Like that is the counter that I wanted to see. But who, like who with? Like, who's running that ball screen action with him? Because Middleton yeah. has been so bad. And and Drew Holiday, you know, God bless him. I, I said before the series, I thought, like, he was better than Kyrie. And it's like, he's not really giving them what they need at the offensive end either. He had two three-point attempts in game two. Like, that's not going to cut it. And this kind of goes to, like, what I was saying when I was arguing that with you last week. And it was that, if you remember, I even said, like, look, if you if you tell me I need guys for the whole season... And you ask me, Drew Holiday or Kyrie, I'm going to say, you know what? Give me Drew for the season. Like, for a lot of different reasons. Two-way player in the lineup, a lot of different reasons. But if you tell me going into the playoffs, if you ask me, who would you rather have? I say Kyrie, and it's not even close because, again, I don't want to get into the whole, like, yeah, there's, like, a different makeup you need. I don't know. I think it's just, like, a talent thing. Like, there is a, I don't know. So there's, like, a threshold of talent that you're either above or below. And 
the playoffs seem to really, really expose and magnify that threshold. And I feel like Kyrie is above that threshold in terms of just pure talent and like ability to hit a certain ceiling. And guys like Drew and Middleton, again, for as great as they are, I'm not even taking it, like are just below that threshold, you know? And so in a setting like this, it just does seem that like... Well, it, to me, it's not it's not even about like overall talent. It's about a specific kind of talent that is like conducive to the way the basketball is played right now. If you're a guard in the league and you don't really have a pull-up three-pointer, Middleton and Holiday like do have that. Holiday, I've mentioned it many times this season, like had by far his best three-point shooting season this year. And a lot of that was coming off of the bounce. Like he shot 40% on pull-up threes this year. He was also really good on pull-up mid-rangers. He can be, I think, you know, not the caliber of shooter of Kyrie, but like he can be a guy who can put pressure on a defense with his jump shot. I, we just like haven't really seen that in the series. And also it's like, you know, you can talk about the accuracy, but it's also got to be a volume thing. And we're not yeah. seeing the volume from Holiday right now. And he's just not putting enough pressure on the Nets defense to get them out of that sort of shell where where they're kind of all hovering around the paint and making life really difficult for Giannis and like forcing the Bucks to like kind of play the game on their terms, right? Where it's like, okay, the, the Bucks have this advantage on the interior, but the Nets are sort of forcing them to engage in like a, a jump shooting shootout that obviously the Nets are going to win. I, I still think they need to like, Giannis to me just needs to be something close to exclusively an off-ball player in this series. The only way that works is if, you know, Middleton and Holiday actually play up to their capabilities and Bryn Forbes as kind of like a dribble handoff release valve is absolutely throwing flames. Like, that's what makes it work. And and I think, you know, people have pointed this out, like there are definitely ways that they can sort of spice that stuff up, like running more stuff with an empty corner, like running some screen, the screener stuff where Giannis is getting the screen before he's coming up to set the ball screen. Um, and that's just giving him a little bit more of a runway. Like a lot of the time, the stuff the Bucks are running is just way too stilted and it's devolving very quickly into isolation play. They're making one or two passes on a possession and it's all kind of breaking down. They can absolutely be better. They can absolutely win a game in Milwaukee. I think they will. I I've, kind of lost faith that they're going to do much more than that. Like, I think they get a game and probably lose in five, which is, you know, it's one of those things where you kind of like we come into the series and maybe it's just a, uh, not like it's a surprise. Like, I think you and I have both been saying like the Nets are kind of our championship favorite this whole season, but I think we also both expected them to face some real adversity along the way. And maybe they still will, but like, when I was talking myself into this being a super competitive series that the Bucks could potentially win, it's like, is that just us trying to talk ourselves into something because it makes the season more interesting, you know? And, uh, you know, do we just turn around and, like, kick ourselves for not realizing that this was exactly what was going to happen? I mean, I kick myself for it because for the majority of the year, especially once the Nets got James Harden, I was very convinced that, like, no one in the East was going to trouble this team. And then the biggest Bucks doubter out there, myself, was tricked into believing by what, like that there was something a little different, or there was multiple things different about this team this year. And so 
me expecting the Bucks to at least give them a competitive series was more about like me starting to believe in what the Bucks were doing differently. And again, like, you know, the Nets are the net. Like they do what they do. They're going to win. Like they're the better team, clearly. And they're probably the best team in the league. They're the most talented team in the league. But the degree to which the Bucks have failed to show their own internal improvements in this series so far is what is just so jarring to me. And I mean, even the Giannis stuff, like I'm glad you even mentioned um, the possessions where he overhelped uh, and whether that's like a focus issue, a discipline issue, I don't know. But, you know, it, it wasn't just on the defensive end. There were some times or even on the glass, like there was one play in the third quarter where, and I, I know the game was already out of reach, but still like the Bucks were making, I don't know, I guess you could call it a run. They had actually brought it from, from 28 down to 21. Middleton had hit like six shots in a row or something after starting 0 of 8. And they got another stop. So it's like, okay, they're going to get the ball back in the span of like a minute and a little bit. They've gone from 28 to 21. They get a stop. You never know. Maybe you hit it, you bring it under 20. There's still like a quarter and a half to go. At least like you can trick yourself into thinking you're in the game. And off the Bruce Brown miss, it's literally Giannis and nobody else standing under the rim. Like there's not a crowd in the paint. And Bruce Brown, because Giannis is like just waiting for the ball to fall to him, Bruce Brown flies in on his own miss, leaps halfway over Giannis, takes the board, finds, I think, KD. The Nets get a three out of that play, and now it's back to 24, and things start unraveling again. And I, I'm in no way, you know, insinuating like that play is costing the game, because I get it. it. You know, best case, they get the ball back and maybe cut it to 18. But I do think that was like very indicative of the, the night Giannis had as well. And it's like, yes, his limitations mean other players need to do certain things better, and the Bucks front office and coaching staff probably need needed to and need to do a lot of things better. But Giannis should not get off either. Like, A, his limitations are real. Look, it seems like he works on them, but it's not working. And then things like that, like, yo, those aren't limitations, man. Those are things you can very much control, and you need to be better than that. Like, you can't have Bruce Brown beating you on hustle plays no, at, I don't care what stage of the game it's at. You need to be more disciplined on the defensive end. And when it's not your assignment to help, stop helping. Like there, there are little things like that, even beyond his limitations, which maybe he can't actually control anymore, that he needs to be sharper and better at for the Bucks to legitimately contend for an NBA championship. Let's say you get one sort of tactical tweak. You can override Bud. You can make a, a tactical adjustment for the Bucks uh, for game three. What are you doing? um i mean i guess it's trying uh, your idea which i think is probably their best bet of using him as a screener more and then the issue as you brought up is okay well who do you run those actions with um again this is by no means a good problem to have like i'm acknowledging it's imperfect especially the way he's been playing you're at this point in the season. You're down to nothing. You don't have much left to lose. You got to ride with the guys who got you here because that's literally all you have. I'm putting the ball in Chris Middleton's hands. Yeah, I'm running a lot of screen and roll with him and Giannis with Giannis as the screener. And I am reluctantly betting on the fact that no matter that I said Chris Middleton's below a certain threshold, I'm betting on the fact that he's too good to be this bad. You know? He's too good of an offensive player to be this bad. So I'm putting the ball in his hands. 
I'm hoping he can give me something close to what he's been for the last like two and a half, three years, mostly in the regular season. And hoping that using Giannis as a screener like unclogs things for my offense. And also makes Brooklyn have to make an adjustment. Because so far in this series, the Bucks have put no pressure on Steve Nash to have to think of anything other than, here is our game plan, Blake on Giannis with well-timed help. Series over, apparently. Again, I did talk myself into this being a competitive series, but like you can go back and listen to our episode like after that two-game set where I praised Steve Nash for not overreacting to the 47-point game that Giannis had in the first game of that set and coming back with the exact same defensive coverage because they forced him into 19 pull-up jumpers, and that is a tenable long-term strategy for Brooklyn, and it is not a tenable long-term strategy for Milwaukee. Maybe one day it will be. I feel like that's probably where we need to get to for the Bucks to like actually take the next step is like for him to be a threat, you know, where defenses actually have to start playing him a little bit more straight up. But for now, like, yeah, I think he just needs to be an off ball guy and like they need to utilize his role gravity. I think the Bucks, a lot's been made of the shooting variants, and it's true. They shot six of 30 from three in game one and what did they finish like eight of 30 in game two i don't know they were like slightly better but still not very good in game two i think the big thing is like they got to turn a lot of their pull-up jumpers right now into catch and shoot jumpers like that's what the nest defense has done i think is like they've they've turned it into a bit of an iso fest and they've forced the bucks to take all these jumpers off the dribble and they're not getting their usual swing swing sequences that are leading to catch and shoot threes and i think the way that the bucks need to open that up is like they need to utilize Giannis and like uh, apply some roll gravity and some rim pressure to this nets defense all right let's take the break come back and talk about the other three second round series what's up pound the rock listeners just a friendly reminder to rate review and subscribe to the show on itunes soundcloud stitcher spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts You can also check out the Score's Fantasy Football Podcast with Justin Boone. And in case you haven't already, download the Score app, available on iPhone and Android. That's where you can find all of our feature content, as well as live scores, updates, and breaking news. And don't forget to check out the Score's YouTube page for an informative, yet lighthearted dive into the sports world's trending topics. Now back to the show. All right. A lot more entertaining of a Game 1 than either of the first two games in Milwaukee. Brooklyn were Suns Nuggets. Suns pulled away down the stretch, but man, the first, I'd say, like two and a half quarters of this game were just like chef's kiss basketball, especially on the offensive end. I know you're writing about Suns Nuggets, so I'm going to let you cook on this one. Give me your Game 1 observations and uh, how you see this series unfolding based on what happened in Game 1. I mean, I don't know that it's necessarily going to be indicative of how the series is going to unfold. Like, I feel like the Nuggets always lose game one and then they're able to make adjustments and kind of come back and stabilize things. I will say, I I think my biggest takeaway beyond the Aiton Jokic stuff, which we can get into in a sec, this is what I wrote about off of that game. I wonder if the Nuggets need to maybe tweak the defensive coverage where like their base is their base. They're not ever going to abandon it completely, but I think putting two on the ball made a lot more sense against Portland than it does against this Phoenix team for a couple reasons. One is 
Chris Paul is, you know, among the small handful of the best guys in the world at dissecting that kind of coverage. Like you put two on the ball against Chris Paul, he's going to find a way to kill you for it. And the other thing is like, I just don't know that it's necessary against him. Like I know he had a big game last night and he wound up actually shooting the ball quite well, but to see the Nuggets score, like kind of picking him up 28 feet from the hoop and having Jokic show hard, you know, that far away, that dunk that Aiden had was a result of the Nuggets essentially trapping Chris Paul 28 feet from the basket. And the Nuggets still should have been able to handle the back end of that better than they did because Aiden literally caught the ball at the three point line and Michael Porter Jr. was simply way too late with his rotation from the weak side. But like, I would maybe challenge Chris Paul to be a scorer rather than making him a playmaker because like that Aiton dunk happened and then the Nuggets were like, oh shit, we better like account for DeAndre Aiton on the roll. And after that, you saw like they were pulled in very early from the weak side. But that's just opening up the skip pass and Chris Paul's like, Oh, I know the counter to that. Like he's hitting the skip pass every time and the Suns are just dining out on corner threes. And I, I just think, look, it's, it's not ideal to play a drop against Chris Paul. Like he's going to walk into those elbow jumpers that are like layups for him. I think maybe like if you play a shallow drop and turn it into a late switch, that's livable. Like you maybe have to do some work on the back end of that switch. Cause you're going to wind up with a smaller guy on Aiton. Maybe you got to find a way to scram him out or you just send help crashing in from the corner and put more of the decision-making onus on Aiton than on Chris Paul. But I I might challenge CP to like beat those switches because yeah, he can still get to that jumper and he's probably going to hit a bunch of them, but he's not, you're not going to get dusted off the bounce by this version of Chris Paul. Like that's not what he does anymore. He barely gets to the basket. He doesn't even really try to get to the basket. So if you're switching like Porter Jr. onto him or Jermichael Green onto him, which the Nuggets actually did start doing in the second half and, you know, Chris Paul hit a couple of jumpers in their face. But if you're doing that, like, I, I, you know, I would even maybe consider switching Jokic onto him and just see what happens. Like maybe he shakes loose for the jumpers, but I just think with, with him recovering from this shoulder injury, he's coming off a series where he hit two three-pointers across six games, I think you might be better off living with that than putting him in position to either dime up Aiton on the roll or hit those skips to the corner, which he's just doing time and again. They're not going to like abandon that scheme altogether. And it was effective in spots. Like in the first half, especially it was effective against Devin Booker. They forced him into five turnovers in the first half. He kind of solved that coverage also in the second half though. And the adjustment to, to put, Aaron Gordon on Devin Booker in the second half, which, you know, proved to be kind of this effective adjustment against Damian Lillard, less effective against Devin Booker because Devin Booker starts almost every possession off of the ball. Like he doesn't initiate pick and roll from a standstill. He's getting a running start coming off of pin downs and off a dribble handoffs. And so it's like, he's got an advantage before he even catches the ball and he's getting Aaron Gordon trailing the play. And then Gordon isn't there on the back line to help. And that's just leaving the nuggets very, very vulnerable. And, you know, I I should say like the Suns are very, very good. 
Like the, that's kind of the bottom line here is the Nuggets are always going to be choosing from a series of bad options. Like their defense is going to have a really hard time, I think, stopping the Suns offense. But I don't know that Gordon on Booker is the answer because essentially what the Suns were doing is like they're running those off ball screens for Booker to catch the ball in motion. They know that Gordon isn't there to help. And what they're doing is like they're basically isolating Michael Porter Jr. on the weak side. And it's almost always Mikhail Bridges, who's like the lone shooter on the weak side, so that if that help rotation is going to come, he's going to usually get himself an open three. And what he and the Suns do really well is like that lift from the corner. So when Aiton is rolling, and whether it's Booker or Chris Paul is coming off of the screen, and there's two, you know, two guys on the ball, it's one weak side defender, and very often MPJ, because I think they intentionally like put MPJ's man on the weak side as the lone shooter a lot to isolate him there. He's got to decide whether to tag Aiton on the roll or whether to follow Bridges up to the top because that's where Bridges is lifting to. And it's too much ground for him to cover. So he's kind of just got to guess. And like what Booker and Paul do really well is look that defender off. And there's like one play where Booker did such a good job, like completely hoodwinked MPJ into lunging out at bridges above the break. And then it's just a wide open lob to Aiden. So that's sort of how the Suns are attacking that Nuggets defense. And I, I just wonder if that elicits some kind of a tweak where, you know, they're not abandoning the hedges and traps completely, but they're just mixing in maybe like a little bit more switching against Booker. Maybe not. I don't think you can switch against Booker, but like mixing in maybe like a little bit more shallow drop. And I think putting the onus on Booker and Paul to like be scorers rather than just like allowing them to spray passes out to the rest of the Suns. Phoenix's offense is obviously a lot more dynamic than Portland. You put Aaron Gordon on Damian Lillard and he does a good job on him and you do a, a fairly decent job of shutting Portland's offense down like where it begins, right? And turning off the taps. And you can't really do that nearly as much with Phoenix because as you mentioned, if you put him on Devin Booker, Booker's often catching the ball on the move before even flowing into the next action. So there's no, like you're not getting the same defensive advantage. And I just think in general, like the the Nuggets are gonna are gonna struggle to find as many answers or solutions to this Phoenix offense as they were able to find. The, now they didn't necessarily solve Portland's <laughs> offense. Like those games were still yeah. That's not why absolute, they won that series, I was right? Say. Those games were still absolute barn burners, but they had more of a chance of doing it against Portland than they do against Phoenix. And the Suns, man, they're just good. And they're like a very well-balanced team. And I think this is where, you know, like full credit to the Nuggets for the run that they've gone on, even in the wake of Jamal Murray's injury. But I think now, you know, you get, you run into a team like Phoenix who is actually capable of contending for a title and are balanced on both ends and are deeper. Like this is where the absence of Jamal Murray really catches up with you because it's like, you are not going to survive in a gunfight or a race with these guys. Like, they're going to outgun you without Jamal Murray. And, you know, maybe it'll be a very competitive series. Maybe each game will be very competitive for the majority. But at some point, if the talent wins out and the more dynamic team wins out, it's going to be Phoenix every time in this matchup with the, the players left in this matchup. To go back to your point, I, I don't even necessarily think that their offense is better than Portland's. Like Portland, I think, was the number two offense in the regular season and had like a 122 offensive rating in the first round. It's not like Denver shut them down. It's more just 
I think that the scheme was like more tailored to guarding a player like Dame Lillard, who is this insane pull-up three-point shooting threat than it is against the Suns, who like, yeah, Booker and Paul like can certainly pull up. And like, it's not like you want to go under screens against those guys, but like they're not nearly the same level of threat as pull-up three-point shooters. Forcing them into the mid-range isn't a great answer because they can cook you from there, but if the alternative is just like getting burned by wide-open catch-and-shoot threes over and over again, I think it's at least worth trying to mix up the coverage against those guys a little bit. The other thing, you know, that, again, I I wanted to touch on is uh, Aiton did a really good job against Jokic. He has all season. He has, and like the Suns, much like the Blazers, are opting to roll with, you know, primarily single coverage against Jokic. The difference is they were able to hard match Aiton, Aiton's minutes to Jokic's because Aiton only picked up one foul. Jokic didn't go to the free throw line a single time, wound up getting 22 points on 23 shooting possessions, only three assists. And look, he, he missed a bunch of shots that he often makes. But I think Aiton deserves a lot of credit for the job that he did. And I also think Aiton's activity on the glass really bothered Jokic and was a bit of an issue for him. But I think if, you know, my biggest takeaway from Jokic's end is I just think he needs to be, he, he needs to have a quicker trigger on some of the pick and pop threes because his instinct is very often to like pump fake and drive that like, glacially slow pump fake and drive. And I just think that, you know, like the Suns were ready with the help in the middle. And then the guys that he's kicking it out to for the most part are not good shooters. Like outside of Porter Jr., Jokic is the best shooter on the floor. So I don't think he can afford to be passing up those open or even semi-contested three-point looks for the sake of like putting it on the floor and kicking it out to somebody worse. Like, I, I just think he needed to be more aggressive shooting the three because not that he can't like mash Aiton inside or not mash him, but like use his kind of touch and his finesse to score on Aiton inside. But I think the big advantage that he has over him or the way that he can sort of make him uncomfortable is by stretching him out. And if he's just going to kind of like pump fake and, and drive into traffic rather than shooting when he has an inch of daylight out there, then I think that's almost making Aiton's life a little bit easier. Yeah. I, I think the fact that they were able to hard match the minutes, as you mentioned, is huge because that's obviously what the Blazers could not do with Nurkic because of the foul trouble. And I think it speaks volumes of the disciplined defensive player that DeAndre Aiton has become, right? And especially with the Suns acquiring Chris Paul, like the changes he made to his game and accepting a much different role than I think either he or the Suns envisioned for him when they made him the number one overall pick in 2018. Even what Aiton has brought on the offensive end, again, it just kind of goes back to like, I, and I know what you were saying about if you look at like the numbers, obviously Portland's offense was a, a tougher offense, but I think there's more to worry about with this. Like, I feel like the Suns makeup and con- like offensive construction leaves defenses, especially in a postseason setting, with more things to account for than an offense like Portland's, which is maybe more high-powered numbers-wise, but you can solve a little easier. And I think Aiton's a big part of that, and like yeah. his role gravity too, and his activity around the rim. 
Yeah, I think it's just more like heliocentric from Portland's side, right? right. Like that one thing to worry about is a massive, massive thing that can open right. up all kinds of stuff elsewhere. But it it is, you, you don't worry as much about the other guys hurting you. And I do think Aiton's roll gravity is a big part of that. The last series, like when, when the Blazers would run empty side pick and rolls, like it wasn't that hard for the Nuggets to kind of snuff that out because as a roller, like Nurkic isn't, somebody that can hurt you that badly like you just don't worry about it that much and with Aiden it's definitely a different story like he he's faster he provides the vertical threat as we saw in that incredible and one dunk that completely electrified that building early in game one like once he gets ahead of steam is like really difficult to to stop um and that wasn't exactly the case with Nurkic. So it, it, it like it, it is like a little bit more to account for, maybe requires a little bit more focus from the Nuggets. And I'm, I'm just interested to see if they come back with some tweaks to maybe try and change the shape of the Suns offense and not give them the same sort of built-in reads against those hedges every time. Um, but the Suns are damn good, man. And, and, and DeAndre Ayton is damn good. And I... You know, we go back to the start of the season when we we talked about our swing players for the season, and he was one of them. And we were basically saying like we thought the Suns could be contenders, but it was incumbent on DeAndre Ayton to take that next step. And there were points in the season when it seemed like he wasn't doing that, but he is very obviously doing that right now, and it's pretty cool to see. It is also cool to see what Trey Young's doing in these playoffs. Good lord! So let's talk Hawks Sixers because we came into these playoffs and. Though it didn't come to fruition, you you made very good salient points about Trey Young physically and stylistically being the exact type of player that should struggle in the playoffs, right? Small guard who very much relies on foul baiting and getting to the free throw line. Goes up against a very rugged Knicks defense, completely eviscerates them, puts on a damn show at Madison Square Garden, both on the court and with his theatrics, uh, and it was awesome to watch. They go into Philly for game one. Joel Embiid's back, has a huge game, and it doesn't matter. Trey Young, even against all that Philly length, still able to do what he does, and the Hawks are up one nothing. They've already at worst got the split on the road before they go back to Atlanta. Like, we are watching, it seems like. I mean, we talk about what Luka's doing in the West, but like we're watching the early stages of what looks like just an absolute bonafide postseason star. Like this guy is made for the moment, man. And the thing is, like, he's basically shooting the exact same percentage on threes in the playoffs that he did in the regular season. He's up right around thirty four percent, which is below league average, if you can believe that. I think it's the way that defenses react to him. And the variety of things that he's able to do against basically any kind of defensive coverage that have made him essentially, you know, playoff matchup proof. Like, I, I guess I would maybe like to see what would happen if there was a really good switching team that could sort of throw an army of like long-armed wing defenders at him and see what he could do against them one-on-one -on -one if you weren't giving him those kind of built-in pick-and-roll reads. But I don't know. I mean, like maybe the Sixers could be that team. I just like Joel Embiid, for as transcendent as he was offensively in that game coming off of that meniscus tear, did look like a half-step slow defensively to me. And even 
on his best day, I don't think you necessarily want him like switching on to Trey Young's. So I'm not sure, but I, I've just been pretty amazed at the various ways, even without, you know, ab- like absolutely shooting the lights out from deep, he's been able to pick these defenses apart. I mean, again, it, it also like if you just watch the Hawks as a whole, you know, and you watch Bogdanovich silence the crowd in game one, like you go up and down the roster. It's like what I've been saying all year. It's like, man, when this team is healthy, they're really good. Like their starting five is good and surprisingly well-balanced on both ends of the court. Obviously with the massive step Clint Capello took defensively and with the presence of DeAndre Hunter, like they're solid on that, on that end. They've got a better bench than Philly. Like they're much deeper. They, while they do play some obvious defensive liabilities, like as basketball, as NBA players in general, I don't think they play any overall like zeros or liabilities. Like everyone that plays can fill a role pretty well. And like they don't play any zeros. They're led by a star that does seem like the type of transcendent star you need in the playoffs. Like they, not that they check like every box of a contender, but they really do check every box of just like a good team that can trouble you in the playoffs. And I mean, we saw what they did to the Knicks, who were a team that was not as good as their record, right? And and now we're seeing what they're doing to Philly. Man, another thing too, like we talked last week and now you even wrote about it, about like this is Ben Simmons moment. You know, we talked about Ben Simmons and Tobias Harris, but more in the context of if MB didn't play, but still, he's not 100%. Yeah, this is Ben Simmons moment. And uh, yikes. <laughs> Wouldn't exactly say he's captured it. Well, yeah, and I didn't mean to like, I, like the the uh, sort of gist of the article is that right. Like, it was not saying that like this is his moment to like prove that he is the real deal. It was sort of more of like a make or break moment. Not make or break. Like he's not going to be broken by this, but I just mean this is the the biggest proving ground of his career so far. And yeah, it wasn't exactly a great showcase for him in game one. I know he came out and said like he wants the Trey Young assignment, but he also feels like he's getting all these touch fouls and doesn't like the way that he's being officiated, which is understandable. But um, I, I mean, I am curious to see if he does get that assignment from the jump in game two, because it certainly didn't look like Danny Green was the answer on Trey Young. Like, I think Danny Green is still a good defender in a lot of respects, but keeping up with a shifty guard like Trey, I don't think is Danny Green's specialty at this point in time. Like, yeah, he has the length, but I just think he's too slow of foot at this point to like be able to make any kind of meaningful impact defending him. And I mean, really the only success that the Sixers had against him was when they went to those really aggressive blitzes like toward the end of the game. But I feel like they can't do that for the entire game, right? Because that's ultimately, I think, going to get them solved and it's just going to put them in rotation time and again. I don't, you know, with with the kind of spot-up shooters that the Hawks have, I don't think that's a great idea. I don't know, man. This is sort of the issue, right? It's like... I was going to say it's got to be Thibel, right? Thibel and spent some time on him in that in that yeah. game, and there were a couple of possessions. Like Thibel does a good job of fighting through screens, and like he can contest shots from behind. Um, he has the right combination, I think, of like foot speed and length to do the job. But 
and, and like we can take this even back to like the Brooklyn Milwaukee series where it's like you know put Giannis on KD like that's the answer like it should be put your best defensive player on the other team's best offensive player and that should do the trick just like watching the game today it's like it very rarely actually works out that way same thing with like you know Kawhi on Luka in the Mavs Clippers series it's like they're just gonna run high pick and roll and that guy's gonna get screened off the majority of the time and I don't you know it's like I'm a little torn on this series because I think on the one hand, the Hawks' wealth of shooting is clearly a bit of an issue for the Sixers. And there's going to be a bit of a three-point math, not even a bit, there's going to be quite a bit of a, of a three-point math disparity between them. And the Hawks just have like more off-the-dribble shot creation, more three-point shooting, and that is problematic for the Sixers. On the other hand, I think, you know, the Sixers starters outplayed the Hawks starters. Embiid was a plus 13 in his 38 minutes on the court. They were just a minus 17 in the 10 minutes that he sat. And Where have um, we heard this story before. Yeah. Every and that, you know, that's something we were season Embiid has played for this team. Right. And we talked about that, you know, off air uh, when we were just sort of like bouncing texts back and forth talking about the series, but like, it does seem like an underplayed element of it, like how much better Atlanta's bench is. It's been sort of an issue all season because Simmons and Dwight Howard cannot play together. Like it's been disastrous offensively all year. And so the the Sixers have taken to tethering Simmons and Embiid's minutes together because they also don't seem to really want to go with Simmons at the five. And when both of those guys hit the bench, especially like in game one, I think they and Tobias Harris were all on the bench at the same time for a stretch in the second quarter. And the Sixers just couldn't get anything going offensively. Like I don't like that can't happen, but it does put them in like, unless they do want to go with Simmons at the five for stretches, which I don't think would be the worst idea in the world, especially if it's like against the Hawks reserves and they're playing Onyeka Okongwu at center. Like that's not a, hugely physical center like he's smaller than ben simmons so i think you could live with that like i don't think dwight howard needs to play i I do want to get like at least five minutes of jazz clippers preview talking before we wrap up but i do want to ask you this one question please do given what each has gotten out of their respective teams and the talent level of their respective teams in recent years in many recent years is Nate McMillan just a better NBA coach than Doc Rivers? Uh, Put reputation aside. Look at what each has gotten out of the rosters at their disposal in recent years. I don't know, man. Like, maybe. I, I, I just, if there's one thing that I'm absolutely terrible at, it's judging head coaching performance. Like, and I don't really even have much interest in doing it because I think in general, NBA head coaches just get too much flack i think they're all like pretty good at their jobs and have a way better grasp of the game than i do like uh, so so like yeah judging their performance just always feels like a little bit lazy like it, it just feels like the easiest way to point to like something that's wrong with a team and sometimes there are things that i notice where i'm like I don't think that's a good decision. Like you notice something that a team's doing where they're 
clearly being scouted and there's no attempt made to proactively adjust or anything like that. Like there is stuff that you can see, but there's also a lot of stuff that you can't. And a lot of times when it's like you watch a team and something looks like it's not working for them, it's like the players that aren't executing or it's like the other team is executing extremely well. And I just think so often like people want to put the blame on the coach and it's just kind of unfair. So I will say I'm happy for Nate McMillan, who I think was unfairly maligned for a while. And I would also say that, yes, clearly Doc Rivers has been part of some teams that have probably underperformed their true talent level. How much of that does he have to wear? Like, I don't think it's for me to say, but he has been the head coach of a number of teams that have underperformed the true talent level. And I'll just leave it at that. All right. The last Sixers uh, Hawks related thing I, I do want to uh, touch on before we get to jazz Clippers is I, I'm not even complaining about it or, you know, saying he shouldn't have done it before. I, I was genuinely amazed and cannot stop laughing every time I watch the video of the fact that Joel Embiid made a full ass WWE style entrance to game one with Triple H going full degeneration X. There were parts in that video where if you watch their entrance, there's like game ops people on the court trying to like rush them to the Liberty Bell thing that they ring before games because it's like, you know, we got an NBA game to play here. And both Joel Embiid and Triple H just like completely walk past them and ignore them for like 30 seconds and just keep crotch chopping for 30 seconds. And the oh, like Embiid's not even wearing Sixers gear. He's wearing this like customized DX shirt. And again, like whatever, man, have fun, I guess. But the the concept and the look of like this happening with your best player before an NBA second round playoff game Again, I'm not even complaining. I'm just like genuinely astonished at the fact this happened. Uh, it was entertaining as hell, but I don't know. It seemed like something out of like a preseason exhibition game in a neutral setting, you know, where like everyone's just having like it. It just boggled my mind. This was before a playoff game. It was his first game back post injury. He comes out with the sledgehammer. Like, oh my god, so so much about it, but. I will say, even if you're like not, you were never as a kid into wrestling and like don't care about that stuff, I will say just for the shits and giggles, please go back, watch the video and watch how many times the game ops people try to like hurry them up and <laughs> shoo them away and how their response to almost every one of those requests is another cross chop. I mean, it's certainly not Embiid's fault. Like he did come out and drop 39 points right, on a torn right. meniscus, you know, doing most of his damage against a pretty damn good defender in Clint Capella. And like I said, it was a plus 13 in his 38 minutes. Like he absolutely did his job, but still to do all that before a game one home <laughs> loss is like, you know, it's, it's mind boggling. <laughs> it's mind boggling. And like, I was saying this on Twitter last night. I'm, I'm not even saying like, Oh, everyone should be giving him hell. It should be one of those things that are like, that's all we're talking about the next day. But I do, I was also genuinely shocked at how little of a deal everyone else made of it. Like I was still sitting there watching it 30 times. Just being like, This happened before an NBA playoff game. That's a freaking MVP candidate who's coming back from injury. And he's putting on like a full 15 minute WWE style performance right now and crotch chopping his own game ops people 
and he's not even wearing team gear before the game. He's wearing a customized Joel Embiid DX shirt before game one of a second round series. I I don't know how many times I can repeat myself, but it is like, am I the only one who thought this was like absolutely absurd in the most entertaining yet confusing way? And I get it. It's because he had been doing the crotch chop and Shawn Michaels and Triple yeah. H and like we're tweeting about it. Thrust, I get all that. Thrust the process. <laughs> right. Thrust the process. But I was still like, what are we doing here? Yeah. I don't know what to say. I mean, he's a, he's a fantastic entertainer. Like He is. You got to give is. him that. 100%. And like, yeah. Like I said, I mean, especially as a neutral, like I don't have a rooting interest in this. Yeah. I was entertained as hell. I hope he does it again. I hope, I hope there's like five of them come. I hope Shawn Michaels comes out with them next game. But yeah, um, it would definitely help his case if they got a win after they did it um uh, okay before we do move on to clippers jazz just quickly right. uh do you do you think the hawks are going to win this series i do uh yeah i'm not i'm not there yet but I, i'm i'm definitely a little worried for philly's sake i just think i don't know they they definitely need to figure out their kind of bench rotation and I feel like if they do that, they'll be okay. Like the fact that Embiid came out and had the game that he had in game one, despite the loss, is still really encouraging to me. And I do think the Hawks like generally kind of got what they wanted offensively, but I also don't think that they're going to hit, you know, 20 out of 47 threes every game. And so maybe I, I should revive. Like, so I had originally said without Embiid, Hawks and six mm-hmm. with Embiid, Sixers and six. Yeah, maybe I'm like going a little too far now by saying, "Oh, I've seen Game One; they won mm-hmm. it, and, and they're going to win the series." I, what I'd say is, I'm I'm more convinced that it's going to be even more competitive with them being in the lineup, and that like I think this is going seven. Yeah, I think it, I would pick Sixers in, in seven right now. That, yes, I honestly that would I would say that would be if I was going with my head over like hard or entertainment. Like that's probably what I would say if, given what I saw in Game One and in Bead in the lineup, I think the Sixers will still eke it out, but it's going to take a seven gamer. Yeah, I don't think Danny Green can be the primary on Trey Young anymore. I feel like no, that's, I, I that's got to be one of the early not. adjustments. All right, Jazz Clippers begins Tuesday night in Utah. The Jazz had the best record in the league. This should be a fantastic series. I don't like the matchup for Utah's perspective mm-hmm. in that, uh, and I think you mentioned this last week, um, you know, it was much more favorable if they got Dallas. I don't know if they're equipped to stop the Clippers, and as many people have pointed out in analysis, like, look, Utah is the ultimate drop team. They, you know, they're fantastic defensively with the best defensive player on the planet, but they're a drop coverage team. And the Clippers are one of the best jump shooting teams literally of all time. They can comfortably beat a drop coverage. Like they they can just kind of do what they do without really being made uncomfortable by a Jazz defense that makes almost any other team uncomfortable. And so I'm interested to watch that um, because... If the Clippers shoot up to their capabilities, this might not even be as competitive a series as we believe it should be. Uh, I think it'll be a competitive series. To me, the biggest question is, like, can the Clippers switching short-circuit Utah's offense? Like, that's kind of been an Achilles heel for Utah in the past, and I'm curious to see if the ways that the team has changed have made them better equipped to deal with that. But... Oh, so sorry to interrupt. A little live breaking news here. Mike Conley out for game one. Oh, boy. 
Yeah, that's we bad. That's bad news. Yeah. Yikes. Um, okay, well, I mean, that to me makes it... Like, not like Conley's this incredible switch buster, but, you know, to me... First of all, the Jazz's offense looked absolutely insane in that series against Memphis. And Memphis is not a bad defensive team by any stretch, but they are a defensive team that can't switch one five pick and rolls. And the Jazz exploited that, you know, not just by running basic one five pick and rolls, but by running Spain pick and rolls, uh, running horns flare, which is, you know, like they're set, they'll set up in horns and it's like, they will flow from a pick and roll like into a flare screen for the guy who's at the initial screen. And that's like getting them open wing threes and getting the Grizzlies all out of sorts because the Grizzlies know that like they can't switch those actions. And the Grizzlies even tried to like bring JV up to the level of the screen at points in that series. And they just got picked apart by doing it. So, you know, to what extent does that stuff work against the Clippers, especially without Mike Conley, who I think, like their offense to me has looked best when Conley is running it. Like the two man game between him and Gobert has been so on point. And Mitchell, I think, like Mitchell's been fantastic, but he definitely likes to dither with the ball a lot more than Conley does. And that can tend to kind of like gum things up for Utah in a way that it just doesn't happen when Conley's running things. So I, I almost feel like, I don't know, that might play into the Clippers' hands a little bit. Um, but like the big thing is their offense revolves around Gobert's roll gravity. So even though they're actually a very rim averse team, like we talk all the time about the Clippers rim aversion, but the Jazz shot at the rim even less frequently than the Clippers did this season. I think the difference is like they're still applying a ton of downhill pressure by virtue of Gobert's rim runs. So I think what the Clippers need to be able to do is flatten them out and take the north-south element out of their offense and make them work more in isolation and turn all of those catch-and-shoot threes into pull-up threes. And, you know, it'll be interesting to me to see, like, can the small lineup continue to work? Because I would argue it can be just as successful, if not more successful in this series than it was against Dallas. Um, Because while I think Gobert is going to be more engaged on the offensive glass than Porzingis was. And he's actually going to roll hard to the rim, unlike Porzingis, which is going to make it imperative that the Clippers actually switch well. Um, You know, the big thing is like the Jazz don't have anyone like Luka who can just pick out a matchup he likes and take that guy one-on-one. You know, like as good as, as Mitchell and Conley, if he can play in the series, have been, like, I still don't see the Clippers sweating those guys in isolation, even against someone like Reggie Jackson or Beverly. Like, I, I think Beverly becomes playable in this series again. And, like, it, it won't just be as simple as, like, switch everything and boom, you've you've magically ground the Jazz offense to a halt. But I do think, you know, that that's the big sort of, like, touch point in this series to me is, like, the Clippers switching against... Uh, Utah's offense and then like the the kind of lack of like the wing defenders to handle PG and Kawhi at the other end of the floor is also definitely a big issue if you had to and I know you hate this but you had to <laughs> handicap it right now would you go Clippers leading Jazz I mean I know now obviously it's calm the injury all we know is he's out game one we don't know anything other than that and it's a hamstring issue mm-hmm. um, I was leaning Clippers already uh, I just think it is a tough matchup for the Jazz. 
I'd probably go like Clippers and six. I'm ending it, you know, in LA. Yeah, I'd go Clippers and six as well. But I think, look, the Jazz are are really really good. They are. Um, and and they do have like, they do have some counters, you know, for the switching. Like Gobert's gonna slip. They're gonna disguise a lot of their actions so the Clippers don't know what's coming. Um, Mitchell's really good at rejecting screens. There's like another good counter if the Clippers are kind of anticipating and and preemptively switching like they can they can counter that in ways that I think like it's not going to be easy for the Clippers by any means but just looking at the matchup on paper I just think it sort of tilts toward LA for a bunch of different reasons you know including what you mentioned about you know it's not even necessarily just about them playing drop but more just like what makes the Jazz defense good is how well they protect the rim but like the Clippers don't need to get to the rim. Like they subsist on jump shots and they're really good at shooting them. And I think that, you know, given their lack of, of like big athletic wing defenders, I just sort of feel like Kawhi and PG are going to get the jump shots that they want. Yeah. Agreed. And I th- that's what I was saying. Like if they, it's not even about them getting hot or anything. If they just as a team and especially those two guys, play and and shoot up to their capabilities i think they'll get out of the series yeah so that i think that would actually be my pick as clippers and six same all right well when we return early next week uh this series and all the second round series will be in the meaty middle i mean some of them brooklyn milwaukee maybe might be done honestly if it keeps going the way it's going and uh, yeah, we might already have our eye on the conference finals and the draft lottery, which is coming up too. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know. Like, it's like I, I could literally be having be a kid here. having a kid like any day now. So yeah. um, this yeah. could well be my last episode for a while. The next one could be, uh, I don't know. I'm basically in uh, like due dates in like two weeks. So yeah, um, could happen anytime. Next time you hear Wolfon's voice, he could be a father. <laughs> He could be in the running to be the next head coach of the Milwaukee Bucks. We're not sure yet. It's all on the table, but stay tuned. It'll be fun. Fan shout out for the week. Honestly, I, I'm not sure if we've already done this as a fan, sh- done him as a fan shout out because we've been doing the fan shout outs now. I feel like since like last, almost a year now, since uh, the bubble last year. And it's on me that I should have like been tracking who we've been shouting out also because it would have been fun to see all the different places we've shouted out including like hungary and italy and germany and honduras and south america and australia but i know this guy's one of our day one fans so i might shout out him out already but if not whatever he's getting another one juan morales at juan mo 15 on twitter calgary alberta canada hit me up yesterday he actually replied to a hockey tweet i sent out complaining about uh montreal being one of the last four teams standing in hockey and uh replied to that to tell me that he loves the pod listens to it every week and has learned so much ball from us uh, he then also went on to say that if montreal wins the cup he thinks i should send him a carry price jersey so uh, this is your shout out juan and this will be in lieu of any memorabilia coming your way but we do appreciate you as a loyal listener uh, we're happy that uh, you said you've learned a lot about ball from us we Definitely are by no means like the ultimate authorities on everything basketball. But uh, yeah, anyone who takes that away from this pod and does learn something about ball or the game or whatever the case may be about Tin Men and Heart, um, we appreciate you as always. So the usual call out for all of our listeners, 
hopefully ones that have not gotten a shout out before, hit us up on social media. Let us know how long you've been listening and where you're listening from, and we will get you a shout out on a future episode. Until that future episode, for Joe Wolfon, I'm Joseph Cacharo. Pound the Rock.